0: Hello and welcome to The Art of Aging, part of the Abundant Aging podcast series from United Church Homes. On this show, we look at what it means to age in America and in other places around the world with positive and empowering conversations that challenge, encourage, and inspire all to age with abundance. Today, we're talking with Bob Kramer about his work and the work of Nexus Insights and other organizations he is leading. or part of to promote age-positive programming and to address outdated views. Hello, Bob.
1: Good morning, Beth. Great to be with you. Appreciate what you all are doing through the Art of Aging podcast. And this is what I would call a revolution. I like being part of revolutions. And as I have listened to some of your other podcasts and some of the listener input, I think this whole idea of really shaking up and disrupting how we think about the aging experience so that the lived experience of aging is different. And so, I applaud what you all are doing through this and excited to be joining you today.
0: Thanks. Bob, first of all, before we go any further, please share what it is about your work and what brings you to this topic and what you've been doing to address ageism and call attention to these issues.
1: I first got introduced to the whole field of aging and aging services as a state, freshman state legislator in Maryland in the early 80s. And... At that time, it was clear to me that we were totally unprepared as a society and that the solutions would not just be government and public dollars, but that there would have to be private sector investment and ultimately a change in attitudes. And now a little more than three years ago, I launched something called Nexus Insights, a think tank, not accidentally launched just as we were confronting COVID, and dealing with the unknowns of what that experience was going to mean, but the known impact that it was having the greatest impact on older adults. But Nexus Insights is a think tank advancing the well-being of older adults through innovative models of housing, community, and healthcare. And I would say the key word there is probably community. What builds community? Either the communities we're presently in or the communities we can create that enable us to really age magnificently in the final decades of our lives. I'm also part of an organization I founded to educate and attract capital, private sector capital into the aging and senior housing and care space is the National Investment Center for Seniors Housing and Care. I co-founded that in 1991, was its CEO for many years, Continue to serve on the board and as a strategic advisor. And then lastly, um, I do a lot of writing and speaking on topics related to aging and, and now put a lot of personal perspective in it as a sort of leading edge boomer and with perspectives of my own and for my wife and me and what we look for and want for ourselves and what we think can be the role that our generation can play in, in the broader society.
0: Thank you, Bob. Yeah, it's an interesting field that people can study it for, spend their whole career in the area of gerontology or or geriatrics. And if they're fortunate enough, they'll get to then live what they've been teaching and reflect on, okay, what did we get right? And what do we need to change? And how is the culture changing around us? Yeah, absolutely. 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 So I just read a a synopsis yesterday, and they were talking about the work of Jennifer Malinsky from the Joint Center of Housing Studies at Harvard. And she was talking about being trapped in the gap. And I think that this is the same concept that you call the forgotten. And I have to say that neither being trapped nor forgotten are things that any of us want to be. So do you want to explain what this is and, and, sure. and, and why you are so passionate about this?
1: Yeah. It's, it, the forgotten middle is a phrase that I coined to, ref, to refer to what will actually be the single largest socioeconomic cohort of older Americans by the end of this decade. And who are these folks? These are folks that have too little in resources, financial resources, to be able to afford most of what I would call the private pay options for long-term care and housing and care as they age. Or at least they wouldn't move into those options or have someone come and care for them at home because they'd be afraid their money would run out. On the other hand, though, they have too much in resources to qualify for government subsidy and support programs like Medicaid when it comes to long-term care or housing vouchers and different types of subsidized housing. So, and I say they're forgotten. Why? Because the private sector market, investors, senior living providers, they definitely cater to those that can afford their products. And on the other end, the advocacy groups are, you know, doesn't mean all the things are there for the low-income folks that should be there. But the reality is the advocacy groups are very focused on advocating for programs and services, housing, long-term care, so forth. But this group in the middle, we know that, you know, in our study, which we did with NORC, the research arm of the University of Chicago, and we projected that this group would be over 14 a by 2029. And the Scan Foundation just paid to have NORC do an update on this, running the n- projections through 2033. And the number by then will be well over 16 million in this group and again there was a wonderful story just a couple of weeks ago by Christopher Richmond a reporter for the Washington Post on this forgotten middle and one of the most telling phrases there he gave he put a human face on who these people are and the one and this one couple and the woman was pro- trying to provide herself and find care for her husband and her comment which was searing was we did everything our country told us to do, meaning we did everything to plan for what we thought would be a safe and secure retirement. So these weren't the chronically poor. These weren't folks that hadn't tried to plan for their retirement. But what they were finding was her husband's care needs and the dollars that, that cost, being part of this forgotten middle, were wiping them out financially and they still couldn't get the care they needed, and the physical and emotional burden on her as the caregiver was huge. And so this is a national crisis. And NIC, I refer to it as my capstone project at NIC, (laughs) meaning, okay, I've got the private sector investment community focused and understanding private pay seniors housing. Well, now here's a real challenge. Here's the, lowest, the largest underserved cohort of adults over age 75, and, and there are no programs for them, hardly anything. And so how are we going to serve this group? This is a national challenge. And there was just another lengthy article in the New York Times. Again, each of those, the Post piece, the New York Times piece, Both, what I would say, put a human face on this problem. They did a great job underscoring the challenge, the problem. Now we got to move to the solution.
0: Yeah, and it, it strikes me that the woman that you were illustrating recognizes part of the challenge that we tend to say that it's everyone's individual responsibility to plan for retirement. And if you don't have enough, then it's your fault. And she is helping to recognize that it is not. It has to do with the structures and the institutions and the programs and the policies that are in place or that are not in place that help us all as we age. And that's one of the big challenges, I think, that people feel guilty, you know, and they feel shamed that they're not better prepared, that they aren't able to, you know, do whatever they want to do. And how do we help individuals move out of that? place of shame and empower them, give them where they are to make the decisions that need to happen.
1: Well, I think as part of that, if I can take a step back for a moment, Beth, let me make a sort of sweeping statement, but it's the rubric under which we have to understand this. Our society, in terms of our economy, our social expectations about careers and workforce and older adults, are all is built around people retiring and dying in their 60s and 70s. And we haven't adjusted to the fact that with the longevity revolution, many people who, quote, retire at 65 are going to have a third of their life ahead of them. And so how do you have planned, purposeful longevity and prepare for that? When so many of the social, you know, the social norms and expectations, for instance, the mandatory retirement ages and pushing you, so to speak, out. And then when you try and come back in or zoning, alternative dwelling units and the ability to have a small dwelling unit such that, you know, you have your own space at age 82, but you're. Daughter or your son and their family are literally 50 feet away. You know, whether it's zoning policies, whether it's retirement policies, whether it's financial planning and financial advisors, none of them have woken up to the new reality. And so, you know, my friend Joe Coughlin at the Age Lab at MIT has been doing a series of programs and podcasts and blogs. And part of his focus has been the whole world of financial advisors and retirement planners. Because, you know, what I laughingly refer to, are you going to have enough to, in a sense, do some of the key items on your bucket list before you kick the bucket? With the idea being that when you retire, you'll have maybe five to 10 years ahead of you. Well, the reality is many people will now have a whole new stage of life ahead of them. And have you planned for that stage? I mean, one of the, I was just talking at a lunch yesterday and was talking about how this creates an unprecedented opportunity as we disrupt higher education. Higher education has been focused on students during the ages of 18 and 30. And the fact that this is your education, quote, for your career. But as we are seeing the challenges of small liberal arts colleges with declining enrollments, as basically the number of 18-year-olds going off to college is shrinking, this gives an opportunity for a college and university to rethink who their student is and rethink who their professor is and rethink who's living in their dorms. Just as a for instance, I would argue we're now going to have three distinct groups that are going to want to learn. One group, that traditional group, 18 to 30. Second group, the group that is retraining or learning new for a next career, either because maybe their first career, chat GPT or a robot has put them out of their first career, or because of the fact they've now raised their kids and now they want to think about doing something differently or because of the fact they were in a physically dangerous or demanding job from which they've now retired. Think military, think public safety, think construction. But now, taking the retirement from that job, but now what am I going to do next? So there's that age of, I would say, really 45 to 65, where you're retooling and relearning for what's next. But then there's also going to be a third group which I expect to be part of. And that's the group that's basically 75 to 110, where they see learning as not lifelong learning, but learning as my friend Chip Conley likes to say, for a long life. And they are excited to go back to school, but they're also, you know what? They're really inexpensive faculty. They're not looking for tenure. They're not looking for health insurance. And yet many of them would love to be able to teach. So these, that's just one area where the longevity revolution is going to turn higher education upside down. But sadly, there aren't too many yet college administrators and university leaders that are realizing this opportunity to really rethink who are their students, who are their professors, and who's going to live in their dorms. And I think that kind of multi generational, intergenerational learning—wow, that's going to be exciting.
0: Bob, I'm just sitting here grinning from here and and biting my tongue that I'm not just sitting here saying "Amen, Amen." Pre John, Pre John, I've been saying those things, and I feel like uh, my voice is wafting in the breeze. I heard Ken Dykewald last week, and he went so far as to say that higher education is the one of the most ageist institutions that we have in this culture. And yeah, it, it,
1: it, and it will, there will be, there are, there are education leaders and there are institutions that get it. They are few in number, but that's going to be the rethinking education. Now, again, like with many things as, as horrible as COVID was, and as much of a tragedy, it has forced us to rethink. I mean, obviously virtual which was kind of looked down upon particularly by many of the, quote, more elite schools, you know, during COVID, it got a revisit, just as, for instance, telehealth and digital health got a rethink during COVID. And so, as is often the case, disasters and great tragedies often, and this reflects the human spirit, are opportunities to learn new ways that we didn't think possible.
0: Okay, so we've talked a little bit about higher education. You started talking about telehealth here. Coming back to the forgotten middle here, how, so how do we help to support? What kinds of supports are going to be needed by individuals who, who are not living in, um, in life plan communities or don't have the money to pay for those things? How are we going to provide those supports for this significant number of people in the population?
1: The honest answer is we don't know yet because the models, honestly, Beth, haven't yet been created. Does that discourage me? Not at all. But that's also a candid, honest answer. There are, there's a lot of experimenting going on now. Understanding that there are, I, I'd put the needs in sort of three areas. One is housing. And we've understood with a Radical rethinking of what constitutes health, that housing is health, is a very common phrase today. And so, housing is a backbone at, of being able to have a healthy life. But, then secondly, then, is how do you have available to you the types of supports and services you need to, in particular, be engaged, not just simply get your apartment cleaned, but How are you able to stay purposely engaged in the broader community and in the relationships that give you a sense of connection and purpose? So there's the, and that's often put into the bucket of of social services, but it's much more than social services. It's basically, it's purpose matchmaking, put simply. And then the third bucket is the bucket of wraparound preventative health services that involve chronic disease management. I mean, having multiple uh, chronic conditions is not a death sentence and does not keep one from having a robust, very active, fulfilling life. But not managing those chronic conditions then leads to acute care flare ups that causes people to get frailer than they need to and to be more likely to need to be institutionalized. So we're also going through a really Difficult and not short term reorienting of our healthcare system. We have had a sick care system. And as a sick care system, what I mean is it's reactive, it's curative, and it's passive. Each word, it's reactive. We wait till you fall, we wait till you get sick. That's when the system kicks into gear. That's what you're getting insured for. It's curative. The goal is to cure you of that broken leg or of that disease that you got. Not a bad goal at all, but not always appropriate in the way we pursue it, particularly as we get older. And then lastly, it's passive. Since it's it's basically a sick care system, we wait until you get sick. So that means by definition, it's passive. What we're moving to is a well-care system, which is a well-care system, I define it as three Ps. It's preventative, it's predictive, and it's participatory. It's preventative. By that, I mean we want to focus on what can you do and what can we do to prevent you from getting sick, to prevent you from having a fall, to prevent you from having to go to the hospital or the ER. Then it's predictive. It uses data, your data and tons of other data, to be able to predict when you're at risk of a bad event so that we can intercede then, not afterwards. And lastly, it's participatory. When it comes to staying well versus recovering from getting sick, there's a ton the individual can do. And the individual does have a real responsible role in staying healthy. So if we there, If we think about this, and this is part of the move to what's called value-based care and a focus on outcomes, and, and this is a tough, we have a very entrenched healthcare system that's built around sick care, and we are slowly but surely moving to a more of a well care system, partly because you know, we spend more money than any other country, but we don't have as good outcomes as many other countries. And I think this is particularly the case. Some of the most expensive consumers of healthcare are older adults in the last five to 10 years of their lives. But oftentimes we're approaching this from the complete wrong perspective. So that's a long winded answer to what do I mean by having wraparound preventative healthcare services where you engage individuals, you engage the community on how do we stay healthy? Where rather than measuring as a good thing, gee, I've gone to the hospital to get fixed up five times, no, you measure that. And the way I put it is there's now a moat around the acute care hospital. And basically, you know, yes, hospitals in the future, I think, will be ERs and ICUs and they'll be trauma care centers. But basically, our goal is to do whatever we can to stay out of the ER and the hospital except when it's absolutely necessary. So that, to me, is the kind of health care we need, and we especially need it for older adults, and we especially need it for the forgotten middle. Why? Because what happens is this is the group most likely to forego preventative health checkups, to not be taking all the medications they ought to take and to not be managing their chronic conditions. So by the time they spend down to qualify for Medicaid, they're frailer, sicker, and more likely to need to be institutionalized and most importantly to the system, they're far more expensive. So we all have a vested interest. We for our own health and society in figuring out how we're going to do this specific models. We know that as you are doing United Church Homes, having a role of a service coordinator, some call it a care navigator, others call it a life advisor or life manager, but a key role in these communities is a person who I would ultimately say they're not only the care navigator, they are also the purpose matchmaker for every resident in that connecting them with people and resources. That person is absolutely key. But a second thing is, how are we going to have this wraparound preventative healthcare? And I think we're starting to see some experiments with what are called non-medical chronic benefits in under Medicare Advantage. And we're starting to see some experimentation there where Medicare Advantage plans will pay for things to keep people healthy that aren't considered directly healthcare related. And I think that's promising, but we're in the very early innings of that, Beth. And they're sort of nascent models right now. But do we need to figure this out? We absolutely do. And it's an enormous challenge right now. So you have the housing piece, you have the service piece and the engagement piece, and you have the preventative healthcare piece. If we just do housing. Unfortunately, we've provided the housing, but the first time somebody falls, we, they may end up with no other choice but the nursing home after that because they can't stay in that setting. So we've, it has to be much more than just housing. And it's social determinants of health is a phrase that's used, but it's a holistic view of the person. And to me, that means by definition, it's going to be grassroots. I look at the best of the PACE programs, Program of All-Inclusive Care for the Elderly. The best of those programs are really rooted in the local community, and they really engage the local community, not, in terms of, not only in terms of social service supports, but ultimately in what's a meaningful role for these individuals in their community. That's going to give them a sense of purpose. So, I I see, uh, I see these hopeful things, but none of them is at a large scale and scalable to serve the sixteen growing to twenty million folks that are right now the most underserved population in America when it comes to housing and supportive services.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I am aware that you have a way to help think about each of these. And you've already talked about several. You've already talked about Collegeville and the role of learning. You've already talked about Wellnessville and the role of wellness. You've talked some about Serviceville and volunteerism and mentoring. And that kind of goes with the, yeah. the, the matchmaking of purpose matchmaking. The other two Villes that I know are on your list are Changeville and Funville. Do you want to say anything about either of those?
1: Well, first of all, let me say that I came up with this as sort of a shorthand, a catchy shorthand, for the fact of whether it's multi-generational, intergenerational, or whether it's a seniors community. Basically, I think there are a series of these different themes that are not mutually exclusive, that will be the sorts of things people are looking for, and they're important. And so that's where Changeville, Serviceville, Collegeville, Changeville, quite frankly, is the fact that many boomers, Changeville is basically social change. And it's about wanting to change society, both at the very local level, farm to table, sustainable, sustainable in terms of footprint and our ecological footprint. But Changeville, put another way, is for many boomers, they had the experience of the protest movement and wanting to change society in, the, in their teens and in their 20s. And this is a return to that role and realizing, OK, you've raised your kids. Now you have a chance to how are you going to leave society better? And which and so, again, it can be global warming. It can be DEI and belonging initiatives. It can be education. It can be the, this incredible lost learning years of, of children, particularly between the ages of 5 and 12, where for many kids, they lost two to three years of learning. This is a national crisis that if we don't address it, we will face a huge price on in the future. And so so Serviceville is about mentoring. It's about volunteering. But it's also about how that is an illustration. That theme creates community. Opus, which is the middle income model that Two Life Communities in Boston is developing. They tested with the prospective residents different levels of volunteer commitment they would want. And the residents chose the highest level. They said they wanted at least 10 hours of volunteer commitment required of every new resident. And when asked why, they said, because we want the others moving into this community with us to be as committed to making this community work as we are. And so rather than being a turnoff, 90% of the people that they've already sold out, 90% of the people that are signed up, and they've only just had the groundbreaking, said what attracted them was this volunteerism. This was community of like-minded folks. So Serviceville, by the way, part of Serviceville in the future, one of the payment models for care and housing in the future will be volunteerism and what I call a pay-it-forward model, where you put in hours. It reminded me of the Cambridge Food Co-op my wife and I were part of when we were newly married in Cambridge, Massachusetts in nineteen seventy-one. You put in and it was a cooperative effort in that sense. So Serviceville, Collegeville, Changeville, Funville is a recognition that to varying degrees, people they want to be able to have fun. They don't want to be heavied out all the time. Now. For some people, that may be Jimmy Buffett's Margaritaville or Disney's new announcement that they're gonna have themed older adult communities. Those would not be attractive to my wife and I, but I recognize they there are. But it's important to realize that that to a certain extent, you wanna be able to laugh and have fun because that's a key part of daily life. You don't want to be heavily. And so I see these as not mutually conflicting or competing themes, but different communities will be more known for certain things. You know, one of my siblings lives in a life plan community that is very focused on ecological sustainability and footprint. And 60% of their residents come from out of state. Why? Because they're attracted to that. Those are like-minded people to them. And I think this is, but for others, they're going to want to live in a multi-generational setting. They're not going to want to feel they were separated and parked away somewhere in a place for older adults. So, you know, one of the good things is because of the sheer numbers of boomers and how they forced the market throughout their lifespan, they have forced the market to respond to them. There will be a lot of different variations of housing and services and community for boomers. Anybody that says this is the one model that boomers are going to love, by definition, it's just said they don't understand boomers. But I think a key thing for our society, and I once gave a talk at the University of Southern California, and I titled it Boomers, Willing and Wanted? or unwilling and unwanted, meaning were they willing to be part of the solution to the problems society is facing, and were they wanted to contribute what they could contribute, or were they unwilling? You know, I've worked all my life. Damn it, you owe me my Social Security and my Medicare and, more, and greater benefits, and if it burdens you with too much taxes, tough luck. Or, and would they be unwanted? You know, you're 80. What do you have to contribute? You're finished. You're done. You know, we've already put black crepe and bunting and black balloons all over your birthday cards. Because, you know, just a, a, you're a baggage of deficits and decline. And what could you possibly have to offer our society? Well, that's going to get changed. Thank goodness. Yeah. But these are differing you know, um, Funville, Serviceville, Changeville, Collegeville, Wellnessville is for ma- many communities are going to be defined by a focus on wellness. I would say that for many boomers, they have lived through the experience of their parents. And though they love their parents, and they may have been very grateful for the assisted living communities or, or whatever it was that was available, they themselves want to live in a setting and do things that will enable them to avoid being put by their children into assisted living for as long as they can, if not completely. And that means wellness, Will. That means a focus on lifestyle that's going to give me that purposeful longevity and that's going to basically, we know, for instance, with dementia and with Alzheimer's specifically, there are a lot of things you can do in lifestyle that will delay the onset of the conditions. And so, to me, much of the new wave of thinking about housing, community, and healthcare for older adults is going to be around, I don't accept just putting more years in my life. I want to be in a setting that puts more life in my years. And that, I think, is going to be the clarion call for so many older adults. Thank you, Bob.
0: We could keep going on forever. But I know that there are other things you have to do today. So I'm just going to reword one question for here, a reflective okay. questions as, as we close here. What For people who look to you and see you as being an abundant aging influencer, what is one thing that you would hope that they see in you that they will apply to their own lives and their own aging process? Because there are people who do look yep. to you as an aging influencer.
1: Yeah. Look at the people around you that you care for and say, how can I be a positive influence in their lives today? So don't just think broad base. how can I change the world? But think really locally, the issues in my community, the people that are important in my life. And, and secondly, as you go about thinking about that, be a good listener. As you go about thinking about that, perfect the art of the good question, which will then make you the good friend, which will then give you the relationship that will last for a long time. And where I think we're human beings, we are wired for purpose, but that purpose is most frequently realized in our relationships with other people. And so, you know, one of the things one has to consciously do as you get older, don't just joke about now you got to read the obituary pages. Our natural friendship groups shrink. So we have to take conscious effort to broaden that group out again. For my wife and I, during COVID, it was making a list of literally... Friends that we had interacted with over the 50 plus years of our marriage, and saying, Gee, we've lost touch with them, let's reconnect. And because we realize we have to purposely widen that circle again, because ultimately, those friendships, those relationships, that's that, and feeling like I need to get up tomorrow because this person's looking forward to breaking bread with me or having a conversation with me. And so I think it's that connectivity. And also I would say our nation needs it more than ever before. And so to me, those are really um, just absolutely key things. It's local, it's personal, it's relational, but ask the questions don't start with the answers.
0: And let the people say amen. Those are words literally to live by. Thank you. Thank you for this time, Bob. Thank you to all of our listeners for listening to this episode of The Art of Aging, part of the Abundant Aging podcast series with United Church Homes. And we want to hear from you. What's changed about you as you've aged? That you, What has surprised you most about aging? How do you define abundant aging and who is your abundant aging hero? Join us at www.abundantagingpodcast.com to share your ideas. You can also give us feedback when you visit the Ruth Frost Parker Center website at unitedchurchhomes.org backslash parker center. And finally, keep October 6th, 2023 on your calendar when we'll be hosting the 8th Annual Ruth Frost Parker Center Symposium. You can join us live or virtually for a great day of sessions around this year's topic, Dismantling Ageism. Stay tuned for more information about the speakers. And Bob, do you want to share how people can connect with you?
1: Absolutely. They can reach me through Nexus Insights, nexusinsights.net. They can write me, RGK, at nexusinsights.net. They can also reach me through NIC, .nic www.nic.org, but all those ways and on LinkedIn and on Twitter as well. So I look forward to hearing from your listeners and I look forward to working together on this journey as we basically rethink and recreate the expectations of aging, leading then to a different lived experience of aging.
0: Peace. Thank you.
1: Thank you.